Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link from New Atlas, Necrobiotics Tech uses spider carcasses as robotic grippers. Oh, mm. yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you are a friend of the animals, this one might be a little tough, but I could not resist an article that uses this new term, necrobiotics, mm-hmm. because whatever counterculture, fashion, or musical genre this spawns is going to be fire. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> unlike mammals, which move their limbs by extending and contracting opposite muscles, spiders move their legs via hydraulic pressure. Mm. (laughs) More specifically, they have a prosoma chamber located near their head, which sends blood into the legs as it contracts, which causes the legs to extend. And then when the pressure is released, the legs close back in. So a team at Rice University here in Texas, they set out to see if they could manually trigger such movements in dead wolf spiders. And they've named this field of research necrobiotics. So cool. (laughs) Okay. Less cool is how the process begins, which is with a spider being euthanized, Uh after which they put a needle into the prosoma chamber, and then a drop of glue is added at the insertion point just to keep the needle in place. So they have this syringe attached to the needle, and then they push a small amount of air into the chamber, and this causes the legs to open up. And then when the air is drawn back out of the chamber, the legs close. So I'm sure you've seen those little grippy sticks that have like a shark head that kind of closes its yeah, jaws. Yeah, the little snappy a... things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're doing that with a syringe needle and a dead spider carcass. <laughs> See, nice. and I'm a bad person because my immediate thought is like, they had to have a few experiments where they put the wrong amount of air in and they just like blew off the spider's legs. <laughs> I mean, you know, science has, uh, it's littered with failures. Sadly, they did not go over those in this one, but the successes are documented with a series of photos that are exactly what you think, right? (laughs) So far in the tests that they have conducted, the spider-based necrobotic grippers were able to lift over 130% of the spider's own body weight. And according to the researchers, one spider carcass lasts for about a thousand open-close cycles before its tissues begin to degrade. Hmm. They're thinking maybe we could add a polymer coating to increase longevity. I know. Plastic-coated spiders. Okay. I I know. But, you know, besides being a super creepy subject of a scientific study— We're thinking there may be actual practical applications with this, such as sorting or moving objects around at these small scales, maybe even things like assembly of microelectronics, which is so dystopian, I can't even. (laughs) And then here's the kicker. The spiders themselves, well, they're biodegradable. So it isn't introducing a big waste stream, which can be a problem with more traditional components. So if you want to look more, they do have a paper on the research in the journal Advanced Science, and there is a video if you would like to see it in action. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) 
niche audience. I understand. <laughs> like, I mean, this is like this is the video that they show at the Spider Tribunal. You know, th- these are the crimes you've committed, and now we're gonna punish you, humans. Like, I, you know, a Spider War Tribunal as an opening chapter on like a world building series where insects <laughs> have been plotting for ages. I, yeah. I'm already hooked. There you go. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from HuffPost.com, and it's titled, A Con Artist Scanned Me Out of $92,000. Here are the eight red flags I wish I'd seen. Eight? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Look, if someone's going to bilk you out of money, you're going to want to collect as many of those red flags as you can, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering how he missed all eight. That's all. (laughs) Yeah. Once you get into it, you begin to understand a little bit more Mm. because I was also surprised by the number. But then as I was reading it, I was like, okay, like these are actually quite good to know. Right, right. So this is written in the first person by Jonathan Walton. I used to think I could never get scammed. I've got a degree from journalism school and I read tons of newspapers and books. There's just no way a scammer could outsmart me, right? Wrong. Because con artists don't outsmart you, they outfeel you. I was actually charmed into submission by a charismatic, exciting woman who injected herself into my life and became my best friend for four years. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. After I realized she scammed me, I spent the ensuing two and a half years bringing my con artist, kicking and screaming, to justice while uncovering 45 of her other victims all over the world who she tricked out of more than a combined $1 million. Wow. Yikes. Soon, hundreds of victims of other con artists, inspired by my tale of triumph and vindication, began contacting me through my website asking for help bringing their con artist to justice. I'm now investigating a few dozen cases circling the globe involving some of the most despicable con women and con men working today. And at this point, the most important thing I've learned is professional con artists are all pretty much the same. They all use the same playbook, the same age-old set of scams, the same architecture of lies and manipulations. But if you know what the signs are early on, you can avoid falling into their trap. And if you don't, you won't. So now he goes into the list of all of these eight red flags that he saw, specifically with Mary Smith. So number one is too kind, too quick. Someone new in your life is insanely kind and giving. They always offer to pay for things. They give you gifts. They always try to help you for no apparent reason other than that they're just really nice. Sound too good to be true? It might be. A con (laughs) artist's first mission is to become your friend so they can gain your trust. That way, one day, you'll do things for them that you wouldn't do for a stranger. Number two, I'm better than you. Professional con artists are narcissists. They're always telling you how great they are, how much they've accomplished in their amazing life. (laughs) My con artist, who worked for a luxury travel agency in Los Angeles, used to tell me that she was the number one seller in the United States of vacations to the Pacific Islands. She claimed that the president of French Polynesia would fly her out every couple months to inspect all the five-star hotels to make sure they were up to snuff. None of that was true, and my con artist was eventually arrested and convicted of scamming $200,000 from that very travel agency. (laughs) In order to engender confidence, they need their marks to think highly of them and be impressed by them. The quickest way to speed that end is to brag about themselves, to tell you how incredible they are and how fortunate you are to know them. Number three, drama, drama, drama. Look, bad things happen to everyone. People get cancer. People have children who suddenly die. People have crazy family members who are out to get them. But all those bad things rarely happen to the same person at the same time. Unless they're a con artist making up all this drama in their lives to manipulate and prey on your emotions. They use them to suck you into their craziness and exploit your kindness and good nature. If there's a new person in your life broadcasting a steady stream of soap opera-esque drama, change the channel. Number four, legitimate day jobs. 
Most professional con artists have or had at some point a legitimate day job, and they use the reputation of those jobs to give them the patina of legitimacy in their scams. And you think, there's no way they're con artists, they have amazing jobs, but that is their plan. They want you to think that, let your guard down, and believe their lies. Don't. Their real job is conning you. Number five is isolation. For a con artist to successfully scam you, they need to be able to lure you away from people who might talk you out of going along with their con. Unfortunately, it's remarkably easy to do. My con artist tricked me into believing my neighbor was a criminal on the run from authorities in Canada, <laughs> so I avoided her like the plague. She then convinced my neighbor that I was mentally ill, so my neighbor <gasps> avoided me. My con artist scammed us both using different stories, and we were none the wiser until well after the money exchanged hands. Oof. Being told not to talk to somebody is about the biggest red flag there is, and it's a very effective tool for a working con artist to isolate you and keep you in the con. Number six is technology. The next time someone shows you a text or an email and claims it's from so-and-so, be suspicious. Connors scamming in the digital age create Google Voice accounts and email accounts in other people's names to text and email themselves, so they can show you those texts and emails to get you to believe whatever story they're laying out. My con artist tricked some of her victims into believing she was best friends with Jennifer Aniston using this technique. What? And she showed the victims those texts in a look what Jen is texting me now kind of way. Sometimes she'd even appear to be annoyed by it and all of her victims bought it. And this is the one that I personally really was like, okay, that might work on me. Because, you know, you, you only <laughs> catch a glance of a text or like an email or something like that and you don't know any better and there's all this other stuff going on, you know, maybe you'd be swayed by that. Mm -hmm. Number seven is wires. My con artist tricked a couple of real estate investors into wiring her $60,000 because her daughter supposedly needed life-saving surgery after a late-stage cancer diagnosis. <sighs> In another case I'm working on, the victim wired her new boyfriend hundreds of thousands of dollars to help him out of a jam when a foreign government was holding his property hostage. Long story short, never send wires, period. If someone asks you to wire them money, there's a good chance it's a scam. And number eight is beak wetting. In a lot of investment scams and a lot of love scams, the con artist will actually give you a little money up front. They'll let you wet your beak. My con artist paid me back the first $4,200 I ever loaned her the very next day. That move gave me the confidence to loan her more. And that was her plan. The term con artist is short for confidence artist because these individuals gain the complete and utter confidence of their victims and then weaponize it against them. If I knew what I know now, I would have never gotten scammed. I would have seen all the red flags waving wildly from a mile away and would have crossed the street when I saw my con artist coming. The problem was, I never really believed con artists existed. I mean, yes, I knew there were tons of email scams and phone scams where people try to trick you into sending them money, but real people in my life who could be con artists? I didn't believe that could ever happen, but I was wrong. Yeah, they're almost like the investment of time and skills they have to do. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah. but there's got to be a lot of expenses that go in with it too. Like, I'm trying to think of like, the personal financial <laughs> solvency of this as a career track, which is obviously not where I should be spending my brain power. <laughs> well, but you're right in the sense that, like, they clearly have skills. If they just use that in a legitimate way, they could be doing just yeah. fine. But the narcissism is what sales makes them people. Yeah, but they enjoy the power and the yeah. dominance of tricking people. That's yeah. the actual thrill. Yeah, and. As we go into this future world with even more and more technology, especially deep fake technology, things like that, mm -hmm. all of this is going to become just rampant. And it's really important to question everything that somebody you don't know super well slides across the internet at exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. Was that really a video from Jennifer Aniston or was it a deep fake or even one of those cameos that someone just bought? Right. Yeah, right? great point. Right. I just paid Jennifer Aniston 500 bucks <laughs> to be like, hey, bestie. And then like... <laughs> 
<laughs> then you get ninety thousand dollars. Yeah, really easy that's that's a good that's a good investment. It pays off. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next article is from Wired, and it's called "How to Simulate Walking on the Moon Without Leaving the Planet." Ooh. Basically, it's a rundown of a bunch of different methods, most of which NASA has used at some point and some of which you could conceivably build in your own backyard. Mm. Really? Yeah. I will note this article's pretty heavy on the math, which I will spare you, but the reason they get so deep into it is because of all the key ways that these methods are not exactly like walking on the moon. So to start, for example, we have the lever method. It's pretty much a seesaw in concept, except the fulcrum can rotate, so it can go up and down and in a circle at the same time. So you put a calibrated weight on one end, you attach a person to the other end at their waist, and they can kind of bounce around lightly in a way that will come close to moon bouncing if you've put the right amount of mass on the other end to account for the mass of the person. And there's actually a link in the article to a modern circus performer who has a modified version of one of these that he's developed this entire choreography around. And it's really cool to watch. You know, he's very graceful and he's made the hip attachment a pivot point. So he can bounce and then do a somersault in the air. And it's really very mesmerizing. And hmm. from a technical standpoint, this one is actually very close to what it's like to walk in reduced gravity on the moon. The only problem is that you're pretty much limited to bouncing in a small circle. And, you know, ideally, NASA would like for astronauts to practice doing other things as well. So next up, we have the pendulum method. And this one takes advantage of a completely different mathematical property that has to do with vectors and the fact that gravity on Earth is pulling in a specific direction. So what they do, and NASA did this back in the 1960s, is they built a wall at a precise angle and then tied a rope between the astronauts' waists and the top of the wall and then had them run sideways along it as if the wall was the ground. Hmm. And this one allowed for a lot more freedom of movement so the astronauts could practice climbing over boulders and things like that. But the problem is that mathematically, your fake gravity calculation is entirely dependent on the angle of the rope where it's attached to the top of the wall, which means that when you jump, the force pulling on you is no longer correct at the top of your jump compared to the bottom. And you can mitigate this a little bit by making the rope really long, but whatever length you make it, you're pretty much committed to that length, which means the trainees could go forward and back in a straight line, but they couldn't move left or right. And also, this one feels fairly unnatural to me. Like, you've got this strong pull at one hip. Because this is the one that they're like, you could build it in your backyard. But it feels to me yeah. like, I don't know, you're just hanging sideways on a wall. That doesn't feel like weightlessness to me. <laughs> anyway. Have you tried it? Have you tried it? I, I haven't. No, you're completely right. I have not built a sideways <laughs> wall in my backyard. <laughs> Enter option number three, the robot method. Officially, NASA named this device the Active Response Gravity Offload System, or ARGOS, and it was a robotic pulley system above the astronaut that could reel in or out the correct length of cable to sort of lighten their weight while giving them complete freedom of motion. And of course, when we're thinking about astronaut training, everyone always thinks about the underwater method. And that is definitely something that NASA uses but there are actually quite a few reasons why being underwater is not like gravity on the moon. For one thing, people are not as dense as water, meaning they will tend to float. So you have to add weight to get back down to something approaching the gravity of the moon. But mm. 
That weight is calculated based on the amount of water a person is displacing with their size. And when a person breathes in, their lungs expand and they displace more water. So the weight would naturally need to increase and decrease with each breath unless you go all in and put the astronaut inside their pressurized spacesuits inside the water. And at that point, the suit is the outer bound of their displacement and the breathing happens entirely within, so their size is pretty constant. But now you're putting spacesuits underwater, which is maybe not so great for them. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's okay for the suits. <laughs> and then you run into a different problem, which is that an object's center of buoyancy is not the same as its center of mass. So once again here, the center of buoyancy is entirely based on size and shape rather than density or the mass. And if these two points are in different locations, which they almost always are, the end result is usually rotation. Because if you imagine, for example, that you have one friend pushing on your chest and another one pushing on your back, you're not really going to go anywhere, right? They sort of cancel each other out. But if one friend is pushing on your chest and the other friend is pushing on your butt, you're going to spin around and fall down pretty quickly. And that's what starts to happen when an astronaut is trying to move underwater. There's always this rotational tendency to deal with, which we, when we're swimming, we mostly don't even really recognize it as rotation. It's just part of the sensation of being underwater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it is definitely different from the sensation of being on the moon. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the density of the water itself, which makes moving your limbs nothing like moving them in the airless environment of the moon. So all in all, being underwater is actually probably one of the worst simulations of moon gravity that we've come up with. Which, of course, leads us to the best simulation that we've come up with, which is mm -hmm. the Vomit Comet, or <laughs> <laughs> as the article prefers to call it, the Einstein Method. Basically, you know, there's no substitute for the real thing. And when you take a plane up in the air and then drop it into free fall, you aren't just simulating weightlessness. You are genuinely weightless. And if you calibrate that descent just right so that you're not fully in free fall, you can, in fact, simulate the exact gravitational conditions of the moon or anywhere else, at least for a short period of time. That being said, it is indeed a short period of time and fuel costs are only going up. So when you factor in all the pros and cons, the Argos robot method is probably going to give you the most bang for your buck. And that is the one that NASA uses for the bulk of their astronaut training. For the rest of us, as the article notes, there's always the seesaw at the playground. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I personally have always found weightlessness to be a little nausea-inducing. Like, I don't think I would mm -hmm. enjoy the Vomit Comet very much. I think I'd be one of those people that succumbs to space madness, is what I'm saying. I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> I would not be similarly suited for any role that requires that. Mm -mm, no, I need gravity. Yeah. Real Earth gravity. Only Earth gravity. That's right. <sighs> but not too much gravity because I'm old. And my joints hurt. Oh, you make a good point. Slightly <laughs> less gravity would be OK, but probably not as low as moon gravity. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. I'm going to keep it morbid with this Discover article. A nauseating part of medical history. Medical cannibalism. Ooh. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Haven't heard of it much. There's a reason for that. <laughs> but throughout history, physicians used human remains in medical treatments. And get this, the practice lasted well into the 19th century. Hmm. I mean, maybe that's not so surprising. Humans are awful. But in the mid-1600s, <laughs> German chemist Johann Schroeder had a recipe for vitality he thought could benefit anybody looking at a little pet back in their step. Huh. So first, you need the body of a recently executed convict. And you don't want just any old corpse. You want a healthy man, ruddy in complexion and around 24 years old. 
The man has to have died a violent death as opposed to passing from illness. And second, the corpse needed to sit in the moonlight for at least one night before Schroeder smoked the flesh in a way he promised was, quote, without any stench. Uh, The energy of the corpse, he believed, would then pass on to the person who took a few bites. But listen, Schroeder was not a weirdo here. He was one of many medical professionals for thousands of years. And even though Western culture has erased most mentions of this, other records date the practice to ancient China, Greece, India, the Roman Empire, and parts of the Middle East. For example, Claudius Galenus was a Greek physician born in the 2nd century who treated Roman gladiators. He had a huge influence on medical theory that carried through to the 17th century. Galenus encouraged people with epilepsy to attend gladiator events with a cup oh. in their hand so they could collect the warm blood flowing from the dying or wounded gladiator and gulp it down. And listen, the belief that healthy blood had restorative powers lasted well into the 1800s in places like Denmark, where crowds with cups attended executions and medical practitioners, hey, they would just claim the corpses of convicts who were hung, beheaded, or broken on the wheel. Practitioners added human flesh and fat to salves and used them topically to treat wounds, and the skull in particular was extremely valuable. Followers would remove the skull from the body, they would empty it, and then grind it into a powder to treat diseases of the head, like nosebleeds. (laughs) Another option was to use the skull as a planter to grow moss, which was then collected and added to healing concoctions, which to me is somehow more palatable, like almost like a chia pet. Yeah, I mean, it's just growing in a little calcium container at that point. Yeah, It's morbid, but at least you're not eating the skull. Correct, just the moss that is now transmuting all of that calcium into who knows what. (laughs) But it was people of all social standings, including royalty, who would turn to the human body for pain relief. For example, Charles II, he would take medicine mixed with skull bone to cure his convulsions, but sadly, the medicine didn't work and he died within days. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there were several motivations for ending the popular practice. It obviously had its critics pretty much forever, but not because it was morally reprehensible. It was mostly because naysayers simply didn't think the treatments worked. (laughs) And this was particularly evident during the Black Plague when prevention recipes did not stop the disease from spreading. Mm -hmm. One failed attempt to ward off the plague included menstrual blood from, quote, young virgin maiden combined with other ingredients to form a cake that people would wear on a string around their neck. And yes, these cakes were not effective (laughs) because as many as 50% of Europeans died during that outbreak. So some medical historians cite colonization as a major determining factor in ending medical cannibalism. This is a little weird to me, but as Europeans increasingly colonized other countries in the 17th and 18th century, they used religious cannibalism as a moral justification for why they had the right to violently occupy a foreign land, right? They're barbarians, they're savages, they're eating each other for religious purposes. We need to take over their country and all their resources and all their people for their own interests. And so, you know, can't really have medical cannibalism uh, because it really contradicts that manifest destiny. Mm -hmm. So Europeans not only ended the practice, but basically destroyed references and records so they could pretend like it never happened. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you say it ended in the 19th century, but there are still people talking about eating their placentas after they give birth. Like, I don't know. Oh, there's yeah. still stuff that happens to this day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, billionaires taking blood from young people. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yeah. But so. even in Africa, I believe albino people tend to be extremely marginalized because they're rumored to have magical properties and can be targets. Right. They have to hide because they're going to be murdered for their... Yeah, absolutely. And let's not even talk about all the, you know, animal body parts that get trafficked from mm. creating endangered species because we think bear paws are going to make us horny or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I always assume when they're like, for vitality. I'm like, that's not what you meant. Look, Jews, <laughs> you can't it, get but... it up doesn't mean that you need to blame it on literally everything else on the planet. Right. Take some responsibility. <laughs> okay, next link. Next link. This article comes to us from universetoday.com. It's titled, A Black Hole Can Tear a Neutron Star Apart in Less Than Two Seconds. Ooh, that's too fast. I mean, yeah. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost seven years ago, on September 14th, 2015, researchers at the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, detected gravitational waves for the first time. Since then, a total of 90 signals have been observed that were created by binary systems of two black holes, two neutron stars, or one of each. This latter scenario presents some very interesting opportunities for astronomers. Using data collected from the three black hole neutron star mergers they've detected so far, a team of astrophysicists from Japan and Germany was able to model the complete process of the collision of a black hole with a neutron star, which included everything from the final orbits of the binary to the merger and post-merger phase. And in this article, there are a number of graphs and photos and a video of the full simulation, which are quite cool to see. It pretty much looks, I won't say like what you'd expect, because it's hard to imagine. Right. <laughs> but imagine kind of like, almost like a spiraling sort of cloud view you'd see on a weather, but then it goes into a tiny black hole, and then it just has some really intense expansion, or maybe even a pulling in of energy, or whatever this charge is. The graphs are really crazy. I recommend looking at it. Hmm. It's an intense astronomical event they've simulated here. So, the research team was led by Kota Hayashi, a researcher with Kyoto's University, Yukawa Institute for Theoretical Physics. They selected two different models consisting of a rotating black hole and a neutron star with the black hole set at 5.4 and 8.1 solar masses and the neutron star at 1.35 solar masses. These parameters were selected so that the neutron star was likely to be torn apart by tidal forces. About 80% of the neutron star's matter was consumed by the black hole in the first few milliseconds, increasing the black hole's mass by an additional solar mass. In the following 10 milliseconds, the neutron star formed a one-armed spiral structure. Part of the matter was ejected from the system, while the rest formed an accretion disk around the black hole. What was especially astounding was that while the simulations took two months to generate, the simulated merger lasted about two seconds. Looking ahead, Shibata and his colleagues are working on more complex numerical simulations to model the merger of neutron stars and what results. I got to admit, I just rewatched Interstellar the other night, and this is all making me very afraid for like when we actually go and approach a black hole and, you know, we start messing up people's lives because they've gotten the relativistic time all messed up. And, you know, it's <laughs> you're so sweet. You're acting like that's not already happened. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really hammers home the sheer scale of black holes, like the fact that it can just swallow basically a sun mm -hmm. in literally one second. Right. It's just like, it's, yeah, 
kind of impossible to imagine. Mm-hmm. Like it swallows a sun and then explodes it in every direction, or I guess two directions, really. <laughs> next link. Next link. This next article is fortunately not as terrifying as it sounds. It's from <laughs> Forbes.com and it's called Earth is Suddenly Spinning Faster. Oh. Yeah. So as we all know, the Earth doesn't take exactly 365 days to complete an orbit. It takes slightly longer than that, which is why we have leap years, where we add a day to the calendar once every four years to get ourselves back on schedule. What is slightly less known, but I think probably still pretty well known, is that the Earth also doesn't take exactly 24 hours to rotate once around its axis. So we also periodically add a leap second to our official scientific clocks so we can keep our days lined up just as nicely as our years. Hmm. But in fact, that leap second adjustment that we have to make is not consistent. They don't add one on a regular schedule like they do for leap days. They just add one kind of whenever we need one. Because (laughs) starting with the advent of atomic clocks in 1949, the International Earth Rotation and Reference Systems Service determined that the rotation of our planet was not only not exactly 24 hours, it was actually slowing down more and more over time. Hmm. And, you know, we're only talking about fractions of a millisecond here, so it wasn't a huge deal. And also it made sense because the gravitational pull of the moon would be expected to be slowing us down very gradually over the course of eons. But it's not 1949 anymore, and as our ability to measure gets better, our data gets a little more confusing. For one thing, the rotational speed of the Earth, it turns out, is wildly inconsistent, relatively speaking, from day to day. Some days it's a little slower than 24 hours, but some days it's actually a little faster. I mean, that does track with my anecdotal experience of time. Right, right, right. Some days feel like they take forever. (laughs) But while the overall trend was generally heading in the expected direction of slower for a long time, scientists are now thinking that just in the last few years, we have entered a distinct period of speeding up, which they say may last for the next 50 years or more. Wow. So in July of 2020, we set a new record for the shortest day ever at 1.46 milliseconds less than 24 hours. And so far in 2022, we've already beaten that number twice, with the most recent record being 1.59 milliseconds less than 24 hours. Hmm. As for why this is happening, we simply don't know. But there are a number of competing theories. Some believe that the melting of our glaciers means there's less weight distributed toward the poles, and centralizing our existing mass would cause our spin to accelerate. Others agree that it is a weight shift, but they think that it could be natural movements within the planet's molten core, or maybe seismic activity, or even a result of the Chandler wobble, which is the phenomenon where Earth's magnetic poles move around slightly year to year, which is itself something we don't entirely understand, but certainly could play a role in the overall physical forces affecting the planet. But regardless of what's causing it, a few milliseconds actually can make a massive difference when it comes to GPS satellites. At the equator, a change of half a millisecond is equivalent to about 10 inches of over-rotation. And that number is cumulative, so even if you're talking about a daily record that's only a tenth of a millisecond shorter than the previous day, it only takes a few weeks of that before your GPS satellites are no longer providing meaningful data. Yo! And of course, the satellites can be corrected, and in fact, they already are corrected to account for the curvature of space-time, given that they are farther away from the mass of Earth than we are. So it's not really a problem for us to do that. 
It's just that if we keep up this trend of short days, then before long we may get to the point where we need a drop second instead of a leap second. Uh. And since our rate of spin affects our rate of orbit, it's even conceivable, though realistically very unlikely in our lifetimes, that this could eventually even cause us to have to skip a leap year. <laughs> what? what? Yeah. So, I mean, really, it just goes to show that we haven't even begun to calculate all of the secondary effects of climate change. I mean, like, I know intellectually that the Superman movie lied to me when they said rotating the planet backwards would make time go backwards. <laughs> but can we really be sure? Like, I don't know. It feels like the spin of the planet changing matters. And like, yeah. we should maybe do some quick calculations on the back of a napkin before we go any further, you know? Clocks are going to go haywire. Time is a construct. Dogs and cats living together. Total anarchy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, we're going to stay focused on Mother Earth for just a moment because James Lovelock, the creator of the Gaia hypothesis, died recently on his 103rd birthday. And if you don't hmm. know James Lovelock or the Gaia hypothesis, the scientist was best known for his theory that the Earth is a self-regulating community of organisms. So if you've ever had this understanding that the Earth and its elements and organisms are all interconnected and self-regulating, this is who you have to thank. He was one of the UK's most respected independent scientists. He was something of a maverick. He was dispensing predictions from his one-man laboratory since the mid-60s and even continued to work until very old age. And sadly, he did say two years ago that the biosphere was in the last 1% of its life. So oh. maybe that event horizon way was talking about can just hit the reset button and we'll not even know. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Watts, the Guardian's global environment editor who knew Lovelock and has been working on a biography about him, said, The news is extremely sad, but what a life and what a legacy. Here was a man who helped to shape many of the more important scientific events of the 20th century. NASA's search for life on Mars, growing awareness of the climate risks posed by fossil fuels, the debate over ozone-depleting chemicals in the stratosphere, and the dangers of industrial pollution as well as his work for the British Secret Services, which just kind of gets slipped in over there. Hmm. Lovelock spent his life advocating for climate measures, starting decades before many others even started taking notice of the crisis. In the 1960s, his ultra-sensitive electron capture detector revealed for the first time how toxic chemicals were creeping into the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the soil where we grow our food. And he was the first to confirm the presence of fluorocarbons in the stratosphere and issued one of the earliest warnings that petroleum products were destabilizing the climate and damaging the brains of children. His Gaia theory, which was conceived with Pentagon consultant Diane Hitchcock and honed in collaboration with U.S. biologist Lynn Margulis, laid the foundation for Earth system science and a new understanding of the interplay between life, clouds, rocks, and the atmosphere. And he also warned in clearer terms than any of his peers of the dangers humanity posed to the extraordinary web of relations that make Earth uniquely alive in our universe. He was also controversial among his fellow environmental scientists and campaigners because he advocated for nuclear energy. And now a lot of them agree with his view. And then as just a little bit added into this Guardian obituary, 
He invented a device that detected chlorofluorocarbons, which are damaging to the ozone layer. And as some of us may remember, that ozone layer hole caused by CFCs has really been a non-issue because it's one of the very few instances where global leaders came together to address it in time. It can be done. (laughs) Yeah. But if he's saying we're the problem, I think I believe him. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, this guy's like, we don't have a shot. (laughs) Well, he just says, you know, we're in the last two years ago. He said we're in the last one percent of our biosphere, which I think a lot of us are finally figuring out, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even if we, you know, we feel it on some kind of instinctive level. But hey, that might just be more of that new agey talk a lot of us don't like. So, well, you got to admit, guy is a good word, at least. It is. And I love that he conceived this Gaia theory in collaboration with, it sounds like, two women. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, listen to women more, Mother Earth, got to be a solution in there somewhere. (laughs) Right. Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from technologyreview.com and it's titled DeepMind has predicted the structure of almost every protein known to science. Ooh. So from today, the Alphabet-owned AI lab is offering its database of over 200 million proteins to anyone for free. Huh. The database was built together with the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, an international public research institute that already hosts a large database of protein info. The latest data release gives the database a massive boost. The update includes structures for plants, bacteria, animals, and many, many other organisms, opening up huge opportunities for AlphaFold to have an impact on important issues such as sustainability, fuel, food insecurity, and neglected diseases. It could also speed innovation in drug discovery and biology. I mean, couldn't it also basically provide all of the blueprint materials necessary for Dr. Moreau to, like, carry out his island experiments as well? Yeah. For sure. I mean, yeah. we got to take the good with the bad here. Come on. Okay, like, yeah. all right. <laughs> it's just Definitely interesting can't to me. say no to that. It, it seems like this is a huge effort where we're basically cataloging all of like the components we need for living life, almost like a periodic table of biological elements, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, this is like opening up the genome key to all of biological life. Right, or is... Pandora's box, either way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, one of the same. So Jian Peng, a computer science professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign who specializes in computational biology, says AlphaFold is probably the most major contribution from the AI community to the scientific community. And since its release in 2020, researchers have already used AlphaFold to understand proteins that affect the health of honeybees and to develop an effective malaria vaccine. The database allows researchers to look up 3D structures of proteins almost as easily as doing a keyword Google search, says Hasabiz. This move is the latest development in DeepMind's push into digital biology, where AI and computational methods can help to understand and model important biological processes. Hasabiz is also leading a new venture also owned by Alphabet called Isomorphic Labs, which is developing AI for drug discovery. Pushmeet Kohli, head of AI for science at DeepMind, said the company has plenty of challenges in the life sciences it still wants to tackle, such as how proteins behave and interact with other proteins. Hasabiz said his dream is that AI could not just help figure out the structure of proteins, but become a significant part of the discovery process for new drugs and cures. And I'm not wrong, Alphabet is owned by Google, right? 
Yes, oh, yeah. Alphabet is Google, basically. Okay. Yeah. All right. I guess it's nice that they're giving back after taking so much from us. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I love that the press release obviously included a little cross sell to like as easy as a keyword search in Google. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, you know, you got to feed back a little bit. I mean, there, come on. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're giving it all lot. away for free. You got to give them some credit. You're like, yeah, it's just as easy as, oh, I don't know, Googling it. <laughs> And it seems to me that we're only really a few years into these mass scale databases for biological Mm -hmm. data, proteins, things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, with the level of ability we have with simulations, I imagine, especially as we go towards more quantum technologies, you know, we could see a system where it's like, oh, here's a database of like all the different types of arms you could have or like the different (laughs) type of legs or hearts or what have you, you know, of all these different animals. And then we make chimeras and then it all gets really weird. Well, yeah. I mean, step one is get the AI to figure out all the building blocks. And then step two is get the AI to figure out all the things you could build with those building blocks. So (laughs) for sure, we're absolutely going to have Lego animals here pretty soon. Oh, yeah. boy. Lego animals. What a perfectly <laughs> diplomatic dressing up of what I referenced. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Henrietta Levitt and the Astronomical Cow Puzzle, The Forest of Dilapidated Mansions, and Scientists Discover First of Its Kind Triple Star System. So all of that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.